Hi, this is Ananda, President of the Hare Krishna Community near Washington, D.C. What follows is a Sunday talk recorded at our temple. Every Sunday we invite the public for meditation, a talk, and a vegetarian lunch. We'd love for you to join us. More information is available at iskonofdc.org. That's I-S-K-C-O-N of D-C dot org. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the talk. Have a seat. This is His Holiness uh, Devamrita Swami Maharaj. I'd like to give a... So, uh, Maharaj is uh, originally from New York, and he went to a, a well-known university. He went to Yale University, and uh, his... His dean told him as he was graduating that you are a Yale man, you will influence the world. So um, little did that dean know <laughs> that shortly after that, uh, Maharaj came in contact with uh, Krishna consciousness uh, and uh, Srila Prabhupada's teachings, our founder whose murti or statue is behind you, uh, in 1972, and has dedicated his life to the service of his, of his teacher, of his guru, and to Lord Krishna for well over, um, well, gosh, that's like 47 years. Um, in, uh, he was always very involved in uh, the publishing of Srila Prabhupada's books, and he spent a lot of time. Now, some of you who are younger wouldn't even know what it means behind the Iron Curtain, but in uh, the previous um, communist bloc countries where uh, teaching about Krishna was certainly illegal, if, if not worse, uh, he spent many years doing that. And then uh, later on, in, 19, in 2001, he became a member of our uh, governing body commission, the, the top leadership of our society. And in 2002, started uh, himself uh, initiating disciples. So he has many responsibilities um, in Australia, in New Zealand, in uh, Brazil, in South Africa. I'm getting envious because it sounds like a lot of frequent flyer miles. Um, but uh, more close to home, he oversees our activities in Gitanagari, our wonderful uh, farm community about two and a half hours uh, from here in Pennsylvania, and also oversees the activities in New York and in New Jersey. So he's the author of three books, and uh, he will, after, after his talk, he will be signing his books for anyone who would like to uh, purchase one. Uh, will that be outside or here? Outside, Prima. Okay, uh, outside, there'll be a table set up for him. Um, and he will be talking today on, um, oh, one thing I wanted to mention about Maharaj is he really likes to challenge us to act based on real spiritual knowledge, to not just study it, but act upon it. And so today's class is called Bhakti, in the world, but not of the world. And, and the, bless you. And the uh, question he's going to answer is, how much should we care about the world and its dilemmas. Isn't happiness within? So we're going to hear the answers to those questions, and please warmly welcome His Holiness Devamrita Maharaj. There's an old Chinese saying, which many persons thought to be a blessing, but it's actually a curse. May you live in interesting times. <laughs> it doesn't take much to understand that right now. Human society is in a very precarious 
perch more than usual. So naturally, the question would arise, what is a bhakti yogi, a Krishna conscious person, meant to do about the situation, if anything? Shouldn't we be concerned with the happiness within? Why should we bother with the outside world? We are spirit soul, part of Krishna. The body, the mind, are temporary coverings. The affairs of this material world come and go. Should a Krishna conscious person, a bhakti yogi, invest in solving the problems of the world. The title of our talk today, Bhakti, in the world but not of the world. Actually, many of you may not know, but since this is nominally known, the USA is nominally known as a Christian country with lots of nuclear weapons, uh, <laughs> that theme comes from the Bible where Jesus is said to have said in his instructions, you should be in the world, but not of the world. Now, this is very high spiritual technology, actually. Uh, the platitude is, of course, spot on. But to apply it, where is the spiritual modus operandi for how to be in the world but not of the world. It's like saying to you, submerge yourself in the ocean but don't get wet. It seems impossible. Indeed, kind of mystical. And indeed, bhakti yoga is the pinnacle of mysticism. Not simply mysticism in terms of bending a spoon with your mind or becoming invisible or reading someone's thoughts. The peak of mysticism is how to be in harmony with all the energies because we are in harmony with the ultimate source of those energies. In Bhagavad Gita, Krishna explains that if you truly want to understand all that he's explaining about different procedures for being spiritual in this world, or approaching a spiritual existence in this world, then you should find an authorized representative of Krishna. Inquire humbly, ask questions, take knowledge. What is the result of that? Does Krishna say you'll simply be focused on happiness within? No, he says, first of all, yajgatva napunar moham. You won't be an illusion anymore. And what is the symptom that you won't be an illusion anymore? He says, you'll see that all living beings are my parts. They're, they're mine. You'll see the whole package. You'll see the ultimate source and all the particle emanations from that ultimate source. You'll see the sun, in other words, and the sunshine. Everyone knows that you don't just look out the window and say that there's shine coming into the window. 
you immediately connect the energy, the sunlight, with its source, the sun. Bhakti yoga involves seeing all living entities in their holistic context. I always like to point out that how can we truly be holistic without understanding the complete whole? We have holistic food, holistic health, holistic everything, but very few understand what is the complete whole. By seeing all living entities as part of Krishna, naturally, you want their welfare. You see that we're all part of the same family. Not simply all human beings, but all species of life. As Krishna himself claims in Bhagavad Gita, all living entities, I'm the father of all of them. We can begin by harmonizing our relationship with all living entities as a foundational principle of our own happiness. For the bhakti yogi, for the Krishna conscious person, happiness is within and without. <laughs> we're embedded in relationships because we're all part of the same spiritual family. We all have the same supreme source. So how do we get the knowledge for coordinating ourselves in a way that balances with all our relationships. I was speaking at Penn State University a few days ago uh, to a coalition of environmental activist groups and I talked about how the human plight is not isolated from the plight of all nature, all environment. Of course, most of them being environmental activists could understand that. But I wanted to put some more fire in their belly, so to speak. So I told them a true story. About two years ago, maybe a little bit more, in Florida, there was a very agonizing case of a young man, about 21 or 22 years old, and he took a pet dog, a little tiny pet dog, by the scruff of its neck and was dangling it over the balcony of the second floor, threatening to drop the dog. So the neighbors were terrified at this obvious cruelty. They called the police. By the time the police arrived, the young man had disappeared. The police initiated a neighborwide dragnet and apprehended him. So you would say, this is very good. But then think about the situation in the USA regarding animals. This young man was holding the pet dog by its neck over the balcony. But every year, nine billion chickens are 
dangled upside down to have their throats cut. Nine billion annually in the U.S. What's even worse for those who are understanding the value of the cow? 33 million cows, calves are slaughtered every year annually. So how can we find happiness within when all this is going on without? Let's try to finger the enemy to our happiness within, which causes problems without. Right now, in the land of the free and home of the brave, there's a massive anxiety problem. I first was alerted to this uh, reading in the New York Times about my alma mater. Uh, that institution released to the media very damning statistics that half of their student body during their four years at Yale seeks out mental counseling because of stress. The, the kids have put themselves through so much in, in their high school to get to the supreme destination. <laughs> so they're already stress cases in their freshman year, and then the stress simply increases because as one student was explaining to me, back in your high school, you were the top gun. <laughs> But now you're at a place where <laughs> so many are as smart as you are, smarter than you. And so that's quite humiliating, and, and, and you have to compete. <laughs> so half the student body seeks out mental counseling. So the university, being proactive, decided we will offer, through the psychology department, a course in happiness and well-being. So they assigned a seminar room for the, for the perhaps 30 students who would sign up for this course. They kept having to change rooms bigger, 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 because more and more students were signing up. By the time the course actually began, the university had the course situated in a concert hall auditorium because one-fourth of the student body had signed up for the course. <laughs> so here you have ostensibly the brightest persons and they have a problem. How to be happy. How to control anxiety. What to do. Then you look at the statistics from the World Health Organization, and also from the federal government. The USA, amongst developed nations, ranks as one of the least happy, according to standard psychological indicators. One of the least happy amongst the first world. But in terms of anxiety, it reigns as number one by a wide margin. Hmm. So the American Psychological Association, I'm giving you these numbers, you might wonder, how does it roll off his tongue so easily? 
because this is what I say when I'm speaking at University of Pennsylvania or Temple University. The American Psychological Association has pointed out that within the lifetime of one-third of all Americans, there'll be some kind of anxiety disorder. One-third. Now, the federal government has tabulated that amongst young persons, that'll be not one-third, but 50%. And often, the anxiety is coupled with depression. Obviously, we need to make some adjustments. So the question is, how can bhakti yoga contribute to solving this massive anxiety problem? In Bhagavad Gita, Krishna speaks about anxiety as the product of material activity. I've been thinking about this for many years. It's, it, it's not easy for us to grasp the full impact of that concept, that just by innocent material activities, there can result anxiety, lack of peace, inner disturbance. Everyone would think, I'm just making my way through the world, trying to be happy in, a, in an innocent way. I'm not trying to hurt anyone. Of course, you have to step on a few toes. That's the way the world is. But why is it that just by endeavoring karmically, just by trying to achieve something for myself and those who are near and dear to myself, why is it that anxiety must result? Early in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna explains a very interesting thing. In other words, happiness is quite down the line in terms of what we should immediately strive for. We think that, well, happiness is just out there. You just reach, you just reach out and grab it. That person's happy. That person's happy. Shouldn't I get my own share of happiness? It's out there. We all agree, right? Yes. Happiness is there for the taking. <laughs> the money is there for the making. <laughs> but what does Krishna say? There are prerequisites to happiness. And those prerequisites are present in a real human civilization. First of all, control of the mind and senses. That's the first prerequisite for happiness. But then, there are further prerequisites. The acquisition of non-material knowledge. <laughs> then, number three, you can be peaceful. And Krishna says, how can you be happy without peace? So you've got to go through the whole sequence, not just happiness, yes, let's be happy. Children born in the West with often hear their parents telling them, just be happy. We just want you to be happy. And 
those born in India often hear their parents say, do your duty, just do your duty. <laughs> How many parents explain the very crucial sequence that Krishna is speaking about in Bhagavad Gita? Happiness is down the line. <laughs> First, control the senses. Then, get some non-material knowledge. Then, get some peace. Then, speak of happiness. Let's take a deeper look at human activity. What we find is that we live in a society that is violent. One of the Gita values that we're focusing on today is ahimsa, nonviolence. And many of you know that the Gita's use of the term ahimsa does not simply refer to physical violence, but it refers to any act that puts someone in distress or even in anxiety. And that includes yourself. What does Krishna say in the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita? Yasmin nod vijate logo. That person is very dear to me who doesn't put anyone in anxiety. Yasmin nod vijate logo. Very dear to me who doesn't put anyone in anxiety. But I heard Srila Prabhupada our founder explained this verse in a very interesting way. He was addressing a disciple who was proposing to make his own life very problematic. And so Srila Prabhupada wrote him and said, Yasmin, no vijate loko. Krishna says, the one is very dear to me who does not put others into anxiety, and that includes yourself. Are you sure that you're not acting in a way that's going to put you in anxiety? <laughs> hmm. So when we look at our society, we, the social atmosphere that we're living in, we find massive anxiety. That anxiety actually can have a positive use. I was explaining this at Temple University. Uh, usually the students there are very attentive. Uh, I wasn't surprised at their focus. A hundred of them filled the lecture hall. But I noticed this time they're more attentive than usual. So instead of speaking for my usual 45 minutes and then 15 minutes of kirtan, I spoke for two hours and then kirtan. And they were all just transfixed and taking notes. So afterwards, after I finished, they all lined up to buy books for me to sign. So I wonder, what's, what's going on today? <laughs> Later the devotees who had arranged this program told me that the professors of the International Relations Department 
the psychology department and the religious studies department had conspired. They had heard about my humble attempt at lectures in previous years, and so they told their students, you go to his lecture and take notes. We give you two points extra on your entire grade average. (laughs) So they had special incentive to pay more attention. So I explained to them the topic thriving on anxiety. (laughs) Inner change for outer transformation. So I told them that anxiety is nature's way of letting us know we're driving up the wrong road. Mm. Anxiety indicates to you that you need to make some major adjustments in life. And yes, for anxiety, you can blame yourself and blame the society that you're living in which advocates contentment and satisfaction solely through material activity. Let's review a little bit of economic history. In 1930, a very, still a very famous economist, John Maynard Keynes, announced to the world that by the end of the 20th century, the main problem would be leisure time. That people would be working 15 hours a week only, and they would have a five-day weekend. (laughs) Have you seen it? (laughs) People would have so much leisure time that they would just focus on family life and hobbies. I remember as a little boy growing up in New York City in the 50s, I read in the Sunday newspaper that the cutting-edge occupation for the future would be something called a Leisure time engineer. Because people would have so much leisure time, they would need an engineer to help them to sort out all that extra time. So if you, in other words, if you wanted to prepare for the best career in the future, that would be it. Prepare to be a leisure time engineer. What happened? Any of you need an engineer to sort out your leisure time? (laughs) What kind of civilization is this that pushes persons, work harder, work harder, and you'll be satisfied in that way? Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Uh, Isn't it normal that when you get a lot of money, you want to work less? But if you understand the sacred science of Bhagavad Gita, you know something about Rajoguna, the mode of passion. There's no satiation. There's no plateau. There's no rest. You just go on and on, more and more. 
Krishna explains this in Bhagavad Gita. Chintam apariyam cha palayantam upashrita. Anxieties carried all the way to the end of life. Asha pasha, shataya bhata, bound up by a network of hopes. If we see what's driving us on materially, we find a big bag of hopes. Things will turn out better. All I have to do is get this and get that. Can we offer different aspirations to people? Can we offer non-material aspirations so that they get off this treadmill? Now you might say, but isn't the fact that when I get my income on a certain level, we're not talking about survival now. There are people who have a problem. They're challenged just to survive. But no, we're talking about those who have a, some disposable income. <laughs> You like that expression, huh? Disposable income. <laughs> Did you know that compared to most places in the world, if you earn enough money to pay for a theater ticket, you are classified as be, being in the category of having disposable income compared to most of the world. Just consider what's been happening as of late. Just to give you some idea of the hypnotic nature of economic striving. It's sometimes called the hedonic treadmill or the hedonistic treadmill. Once you're on it, you just keep running and running, but you don't attain satiation even though your income may go up, your acquisitions, your luxuries may increase, but you don't attain satiation. To face square on the nature of karmic activity in yoga talk or the focus on activities just for material gain or material gratification never provides the outcome that we expect. There's something illusory about it. That's why Krishna says moha jala samavrata, covered by a network of illusion. What do you mean illusion? I'm just trying to make money. I'm trying to increase my status. What's the problem? Inbuilt. In those activities is dissatisfaction, anxiety. Those ills are part and parcel of the materialistic endeavor. And materialistic endeavor means whether you're rich or poor, endeavors to seek fulfillment through material gain. And certainly, no one here simply wants to survive. Everyone here wants to thrive. You want to flourish. And who would ever think that Bhagavad Gita really knows what it's talking about? 
up until 2005, if you were a wealthy person, you would work less. That seems normal, right? I've got lots of money. Why should I work so hard? Since 2005, statistics show that is no longer the case. If you are a wealthy person, you work more than anyone else because the meaning of your life is coming from work, 70 hours in the office. It fulfills your purpose. This is a very significant change in the economic and sociological history of the USA. No longer do you just want a job. Having a job is a necessity, right? No more is it just having a career. Having a career is for status. Now it's all about work as a religion, as a purpose. I define my existence by how many hours I work, how hard I'm working. Even though I'm wealthy, I don't need to work all that much. It gives me a sense of purpose to my existence. It solves my existential anxieties. So this is the environment that your children are growing up in. How to protect them. This phenomenon of karmic activity, materialistic activity, revealing itself as dangerous and injurious, it's very hard to see without the whole process of bhakti yoga. Very difficult to see. So now, as a result of such a focus on economic endeavors, not for mere survival, but for fulfillment, as a result, anxieties are mounting individually, collectively. This is a violation of ahimsa. More than the horrors of slaughtering animals, you are also slaughtering the potential of millions of human beings. So much so that, as we said earlier, 50% of your young people have anxiety disorders. 50%. So it, makes you, it just makes you wonder, what kind of society are we living in? Hmm. Gradually, we begin to consider that maybe Krishna knows what he's talking about in surveying all the possible human endeavors. There's karmic activity in terms of trying to satisfy yourself. There's a quest for yogic powers. There's the quest for metaphysical wisdom. Bhakti is special because it is non-reactive work. What I see in my travels around the world that plagues us so much is the notion that, 
what's wrong with just doing this for me, you know? <laughs> I'm not hurting anybody as far as I can see anyway. And, uh, when you think about it, who are the materialists? Everyone knows who the materialists are, right? Those persons who have more money than me, they are the materialists. <laughs> I've got just what I need, and I could use a bit more. But my neighbor, he or she is the materialist. <laughs> but it's interesting in Bhagavad Gita that Krishna does not classify a materialist according to your wealth. The basic categorization means are you thinking you're the body or not? If you think you're the body, then you're a materialist. Whether you're rich or poor. Because if you think you're the body, you will utilize all the resources that you falsely claim as your own. You'll utilize them for your own self-aggrandizement, your own selfish purposes, me and mine. So whether rich or poor, if we think we are the body, then we are materialists. And that materialism must produce rancor. It must produce dissatisfaction. This is hard for us to understand. I've been thinking about it for years. Probably you can understand it quicker, but for me it's taken some time. Is it that bad, material activities? Can Bhagavad Gita be correct in saying these activities bring about no peace? You look at the sociological situation in the USA from another lens. I was reading an academic study which revealed that of the two opposing political parties, it's not our business to get into their differences here, but this academic study revealed that 40% of the members of one party thought the members of the other party were evil. 20% thought their opponents in the opposing party were not even human, they were animals. <laughs> and between 16 and 20% thought the world would be a better place if the opposing party just died. <laughs> so where's the happiness? Where's the peace? Bhakti yogis have an extraordinary task ahead of them. How to demonstrate that happiness is within and without. Our own happiness has an ecological footprint and it has an existential footprint in that we are all related to all living entities and part of the Supreme. We're part of Krishna. We have to solve the problems of life on all those levels. Then we can finally understand what is peace how to endeavor in such a way that doesn't saturate the world with anxiety. This is a great work, a great task. And 
By executing this task, you'll see what is real nonviolence at its deepest level. All right, any questions? Thank you, Maharaj. You always uh, speak uh, so much wisdom, so so much clarity. Uh, very grateful. Um, I have a question that, please don't misunderstand, is uh, it's not meant to be inflammatory. But growing up in the movement, you can imagine how many lectures I've heard on the dangers of material culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, devil's advocate, someone could say that many of the things within this movement could benefit from a little more cash. <laughs> you know, a little more free-flowing, you know, uh, uh, you know, resource, financial resource in this society would be to the benefit of ISKCON. Uh, so my question is, and it's a sincere question, my question is, are we in some ways causing disharmony with our relationship to finances by our philosophy? And how do we deal with the realities of being in a world that is so driven by cash? First of all, resources for the sake of supporting a devotional lifestyle, the devotional lifestyle of one's family, and indeed the devotional lifestyle of as much of the world as, you can, as your resources allow you to help. That is not material. Next time I come, I may speak on the yoga of money. <laughs> I do it often in Australia. It's a... You know, it's, it fills the house, you know. Yoga money, okay, finally we got a Swami who's, you know, dealing with the real things in life. <laughs> mm. Spiritual economics must be there. That means economic endeavors to support a spiritual lifestyle. This is First Canto Bhagavatam. In material endeavors for one's own material advancement and gratification are not to be performed. Such endeavors, such economic endeavors should be done for the sake of liberation, freedom from material existence. You're a family man. Support the spiritual culture of your family. That's spiritual economics. If you've got billions, please build the new temple in Potomac. (laughs) But what I was talking about, as you well know, is the pursuit of material objectives Especially the pursuant is thinking, this will bring me satiation, fulfillment. That's what I'm talking about. Can I ask a follow-up? Forgive me. Forgive me for this. Can I ask a follow-up? 
Specifically, I guess what I'm asking about is, do you feel that there's any... Uh, and really, this is a genuine question. It's not coming from... You're completely genuine. Well, <laughs> uh, I, do you feel that we're creating any negative mental framework or relationship with the way we deal with finance? Who deals? Uh, the society in general. Uh, you know, Which society? Iskon society. Ah. Our, our Christian conscious yeah. society. Ah. Do, are we creating... You know, because I know in the in the outside world, there's a lot of emphasis put on your perspective or your relationship to finance, how you think of and how you, uh, uh, you know. I, I I just am, I'm I'm wondering if if you feel there's any any uh, weight to that at all, or if it's just a, a mis you know perception. Are you asking me about prosperity religion? Well. Of course, I don't buy into that. Like uh, the movie The Secret or something like that, where you can kind of project your, you know, your, uh, you know, manifest your, you know, your material happiness or something like that. But I guess what I'm asking... You want to hear me preach like a prosperity preacher? <laughs> Jesus was no poor man. When he was born, wise men from the East brought him gold. <laughs> he took your place in poverty so you could take his place in prosperity. <laughs> but I mean, and if this if the, and if this isn't the right forum, we you know I'm I'm, I'm happy to continue this conversation another time. Well, let's see if uh, there are other questions. Yes, okay. Uh, any ladies have a question? We usually go men, ladies. Kopi, no. Okay. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Prabhu. Great talk, you know, at least it's touching to my heart, you know, that uh, uh, anxiety. So the one just quick, quick comment, you know, uh, the leisure time engineering I do see every day, the best example is cell phone. <laughs> Hare Krishna Maharaj, thank you for being here. Thank you for for your wisdom and, and the good words for Krishna consciousness. My question, I think Gaurabani went first than me, and, and, and my question is related to what he was saying. But one of the base of Krishna consciousness is simple life, high thinking. All right? So if we go in further on that way of thinking, why we preaching to these universities and these all uh, mega companies about uh, simple life or how they can manage better their, their profession in order to have a simple life and, and be in prosperity in their own spiritual life. So we should go exactly in a spiritual way of preaching to everybody as the same or there is different preaching between a university or a simple person who works eight hours a day and making only five dollars an hour what's, what's the difference who's supporting yeah. who and who we want to support yes that's why I said there are many persons in this world who are struggling to survive but we're talking about those 
who look to material gain in order to thrive and flourish. And there is so much research now that calls into question this materialistic quest, but how to get people to agree to control their senses. Often I explain something called the impact bias. This is from Nobel Prize winning behavioral economists. Human beings always overshoot the mark in their anticipation of the emotional bang that an acquisition or achievement will bring. They have an inbuilt fault that they always think they'll get much more of a bang than what they actually get. Now these Nobel Prize winners confess that they themselves fall victim to this, even though they win the Nobel Prize for studying the phenomenon. One of them was saying, I bought a big house outside the city thinking how wonderful it would be to have such a mansion. And then as soon as I got to the mansion outside the city, I realized I'm lonely. Let me move back into the city. So he's studying this impact bias. It's, in other words, called emotional forecasting. So this knowledge that's resembling Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam is out there. I simply point out that the best way to get this knowledge is hearing from Krishna and Bhagavad Gita. Then you can penetrate the veil. You can understand that there's something inherently faulty in materialistic endeavor. It's a challenging topic, I know. I like challenges. <laughs> yes. Hare Krishna. So um, I'd just like to comment on both their comments and then another my comment. <clears throat> I think I'm just going to speak as an American, not in, you know, born out of the Krishna consciousness as a Jewish person. For my opinion is, from what you're saying, if people can't make it at five dollars an hour, they can't feed their families. They're very rare. They're going to. They're gonna, they're, they need their basic needs, food and safety for children. If they're on the streets, good luck. I mean, maybe you'll get some people, but really, Americans are like me, 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 more's better, this culture that we've inherited. So if we took better care of our poor and fed them and put them in safe spots, I believe they would, once they're eat, they've eaten their children and they're safe, they're much more open to to learn about Krishna consciousness. This is what I've seen growing up near a very poor neighborhood. And by, this, and by the same token, the, the polarity, the ri very rich, they're happy. Or they think they're happy. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> but desire by its very nature, desire is always desiring more and more. So there's still an empty hole. But I feel like they're almost the same. They're polarities, but they suffer the same sickness or American sickness of filling, filling this empty void. And I think um, what moved me to come here to this temple after going to a lot of places is realizing that the more stuff I have, the more boyfriends I have, this and that, you're, I was still empty inside. And I came here just as curiosity. Well, I've tried this, I've tried that. 
and, he, and, and witnessing the people in this temple and the, the love. Well, I have a, a certain fondness for chanting, but I was blown away by the feeling. I was attracted to something not knowing. wasn't attracted to reading the Gita first. So there was a little sprinkling of whatever, some grace from Krishna or something that made me want more of it. All I knew is something here was real. I didn't know what it was. So attracting me as an intellectual here wasn't going to work. First I got this emotional taste, and then I wanted to learn more. Any, Wonderful. <laughs> any comments? <laughs> People still need to eat first, <laughs> and the rich have to suffer a little bit. They have to suffer. They have to go through death, some, something. They're just not going to come off their high horse and go, oh, I need Krishna consciousness. <laughs> So I know someone that went to Google. They're very wealthy. They get paid big money. And a handful of people were attractive through chanting. That actually, a girlfriend of mine was a big, was ahead of the Google Maps program. So when she heard chanting at Google, she realized, like, I have all this stuff, but I'm, what is this chanting? And then that was it for her. And then she just was in India and went to the Krishna consciousness and heard Prabhupada. And she's had lots of, and she fell in love. So there you go. Wonderful. Any comments on anything she said, Marsh? I think she said it very nicely. Um, I'm not going to get into right now the whole um, American mystique of the winner-take-all economy. Um, that's for you all to grapple with. Um, politically, that is. Uh, I'm trying to get underneath the whole problem. What causes the unnecessary urge for material aggrandizement when even mundane social research points out that this will not make anyone truly happy. But there's something about that whole passionate quest that drives you onward and onward on a treadmill. What is it? It's that mystery that I'm trying to grapple with. <laughs> By the way, we have just a little time, but for those interested, since you brought the subject up, I've written a book called Hiding in Unnatural Happiness, published by the Bhaktivedanta Book Trust, and it deals with a, a lot of what... <laughs> hiding in unnatural happiness. It deals with happiness research, research about fulfillment through economic gain. You might find it interesting. <laughs> Thank you, Marge. Hare Krishna. <laughs>